from Psalm 2. So you can look in your bulletin or open your word and follow along. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and so we're going to take a little Christmas break, if you will, for the next couple of weeks and look at some texts that kind of help focus us in this overwhelming holiday season. We don't have children's church today, so kids, I need to give you a message this morning. If you were to look at your bulletins, everybody look at their bulletin, kids, and you see that Nicene Creed there? You see that from the county of Nicaea? I need you to know something. You don't have to read it. Santa Claus is real. Did y'all know that? Santa Claus is real, kids. He just lived back in 300 A.D. St. Nick, Bishop Nicholas from one of the block countries. And, the, and just so you know that the priests back, the, the bishops back then wore red garb from his particular part of the country and it was laced with white. Did you know that Santa Claus, the, the, the person, the persona we know as Santa Claus, helped write what you have in your bulletin today? Bishop Nicholas stood up against those who would claim that Jesus was not God and not man. He fought on the side that put what you have in your bulletin together. So kids, you can tell your friends, Santa Claus is real, and Santa Claus helped lay the foundations of what we believe today. So Santa Claus not only saved Christmas, Santa Claus, for some of our people, saved the name and word of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, that's the kind of gift you want to know from Santa Claus. The psalm before you was originally applied to the coming of David to his throne as the king of Israel some 3,000 plus years ago. But it has a dual role, this psalm, with the second role being the more important of the two. For this was also a psalm that David himself hoped would be true. For this psalm, it prophesies ultimately 
of God's son, Jesus Christ. So through David, he calls the kings of the world, and now you and me to take notice and to take our place in line to kiss the son. To respect and react rightly to him, Jesus, as God's king. And in Jesus' case, is God the king. But the psalm says that the nations, at the beginning says the nations rage, that they responded with rebellion and disdain to this message. They rage because you see the king whom we now recognize as the son of God, Jesus, who came as a little baby, came to take authority. He didn't come to just take his place among the kings and and rulers of of the earth, but a new concept to those in the ancient world, and especially now to us living in the postmodern world, a king of kings. A one ruler over all kings, over everybody. Not a democracy, not a vote thing. This man, God on earth, not just to be competent among many thinkers and philosophers and scientists, but omnicompetent. Not just one of many ways for how we should live life, but the one who claims he comes to replace and eclipse and modify and redeem all other so-called truths and religions and reasons by which we live and operate. And when when we are challenged by that, when we are challenged by him, a foreign power, if you will, to the way we do things, some rebellion and rejection in us is inevitable. For what Jesus coming declares is that our greatest strengths and the correlating weaknesses that you and I are not good enough. When Jesus came, it it declared that we weren't righteous enough or smart enough, that, that we have made incomplete and incompetent decisions for our lives according to his judgment. So this, what we see at Christmas, this baby Jesus, this coming king to be in this world, he is seen as a threat. Because he will grow up to take over. This baby Jesus, as the psalm prophesizes, is magnified from his place among the nativity sets and songs like Silent Night, if you will, into the greatest threat to human pride and propriety. To say, as some have, have, that Jesus has come to raise some mess is an understatement. For the inhabitants of heaven stir and stand and sing and shout at his coming peace on earth and goodwill to men whom his favor rest. And it's a line you like to see on Christmas cards, and you see the word peace all over Christmas time. But you know what the psalm is teaching about peace? It really means that there will be peace on earth because he will come to quiet all those who oppose him, all in us and around us, that this is good news for us who bow our lives to him. So the psalm invites us. It gives us a chance. It gives us a call to kiss the son 
to like the wise men, like the magi in the Christmas stories. Verse 10 in the psalm tells us to be wise, men and women, to, to be wise enough to kiss the sun, to, as some say it, to kiss the ring, to kiss the scepter, to kiss the one who will and does rule for your own good. Because first of all, you and I are not safe where we stand. Secondly, we are not safe in the strengths that fuel our rebellion and rejection. And finally, we are only safe and secure when we allow our lives to be overtaken and consumed by Jesus, the King. The kings and rulers of the earth declared their independence and lack of need or or want of the coming king. And when the king is the representative in in this case, Jesus God himself, their rebellion is against their ruler to be, regardless of whether they want it or not. Verse 1 says what? That they conspire, that the kings and rulers of the earth, they plot, they, they reason against God's rule in their lives. We also see that they stand in the strength of community. In verse 2, it says that they stand together, that they are joined together in a community of ideas, of, of like minds, of like passions. And, and we see that these kings declare that they are not in need of God's king to rule over them because they are comfortable and they are capable under their own rule, under their own set of laws, under their own sense of righteousness. We see this in verse 3, if we can read it here. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And bonds and cords can also mean chains. What is going on here is that God's new law under the new king, it feels like chains or bonds on them because they are rebellious to it. They are lawbreakers in their hearts and their lives to to God's new rule and way. They declare that God's justice, God's sense of righteousness that is coming in his new king cannot contain, compare, or control or improve upon theirs. They will not submit to their standard of living and worth and freedom to his. Let me level with you. What this coming king is doing is he's coming to declare lordship and dominance over things that these kings and rulers have worked hard for and would die for. Stuff that these kings and rulers, let's not all paint them in a bad picture, and leaders have, have suffered to have and maintain. This is stuff that they have gone to war for, that that give them and their people and their families a sense of security and identity. I think for many of us, we too have worked hard to be where we are, to be who we are. We've worked hard to to be and, and have what will make us happy 
and, and, and secure. We have sacrificed so many things. I mean, each of you have a great epic story about how hard you worked to have and protect and secure and uphold everything you've got. You have endured being burned by people over you or, or people that were supposed to take care of you. You've been left out to dry or led to believe that if, that if you were strong, if you weren't strong, no one else would be there for us. And you have built a personal kingdom on personal competencies. You have built your ability to control and feed your own destinies and desires, and that makes sense in this kind of world. And we have even allowed ourselves, some of us, to be treated like trash to get where we are, and we think there is no way, as hard as I've worked, as much as I've suffered, as much stuff I've been through and allowed people to do to me to get where I am, there is no way I'm going to let someone come and take it away. Some of us have even been oppressed in the past by really evil and hard things. And thus, guess what? You've got to hold on to it. You must rule and be on top of things from here and out. I know what it's like to have to come across knowing or being able to know everything or, or else be crushed by your parents or seen as not as important or taken over and crushed by someone else for mom and dad and friendships or a demanding spouse. You've had to be confident and strong and beautiful and self-promoting and protecting. Some of us have had to be extra righteous on your own, fighting to escape some bad failure in your past or moral failure, heartache, and addictions. Many of you have had to set a a guard of your morals and rules real high so that you don't fall again. We've had to defend ourselves and what we have and who we are against predators around us. And along comes this psalm. Along comes God and says, here comes Jesus. And Jesus saying, let down and lay down your strengths to me. All the stuff you put together, all the life you've made. Here comes Jesus and he says, give it all up. Let it go. Loosen it. Even your high, moral, self-righteous ways, drop it for my sense of righteousness. Let me take control of your life. Give me the wheel of your new expensive ride. So guess what? Authority that calls us to lay it down our abilities and identity and securities down can be a real threat. It can feel like an enemy. And so the gospel, ironically, can feel and look oppressive. Let me warn you right now, when you hear about Jesus coming and taking over and the gospel taking full control of your life, when that thing moves from its elementary phase of, oh, yeah, you know, we're just going to walk the aisle and come to Christ kind of thing, and you begin to see Jesus is just not this little baby who's going to just comfort and hold you, and he does that very well too, but that he's coming to take over your life and take over the things that are most valuable to you, All of a sudden, the gospel itself becomes this threat looming over you. And it continues that way. I guess I've been a Christian for about 20 years. And Jesus wants more. I didn't know how many walls I had. 
I didn't know how many securities I had. I thought, hey, let me give this up to him. He'll be fine. Give up. Okay, Jesus, you can have this. You can have that. He wants to rule. That's what Christmas means. Sometimes we try to out-reason or no-reason out-God. Whether we call ourselves Christians or not, we try to agnosticize him. Where we make him there and, and having to exist but not called to get in our personal stuff. We agnosticize God to control and to be able to keep him and, and back him off where he makes us uncomfortable. So we have become strong in hiding the truth and submitting our lives fully to him. We build a wall of competency to cover over being seen as inept. Or we'll say, Lord, look what we've done. That's good enough. You don't need to take it. Or we try to atheize him, right? He can't exist. In this area of my life, for you've had to work so hard and suffered in doing so much without help from some higher power, there is no way this God is going to take credit or control over what I have worked, obviously, in my own power to deal with. It was, I was crying alone without God. I was suffering alone without God. I had to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. He didn't exist back then, and now he wants to come in and be the Lord now? This is what the rulers and kings are feeling. They built these kingdoms, man. Well, we subdivide God, right? Giving him only the divisions of our lives that will not threaten our control or subdivide our lives and protect where we may have been hurt before. We, like the nation, see his rule, his law, his sense of righteousness as potentially damaging and hurtful. And so we refuse to be handled by it in one way or another. It's not being a Christian or not a Christian. It's about being a Christian who holds on so hard. But look at verse 5 with me. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and th- terrify them. In his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let's go back to verse 4. It was verse 4 I wanted. Sorry. He who sits in heaven, in the heavens, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. God laughs. When we say, Lord, you can't have this. I got this. You can't go any further, king of kings and lord of lords, creator of the universe, the one who's come to take over. I got this. He laughs because there is nothing or no one he can't handle and can't see and can't deal with and can't destroy and punishes God. He has all dominion and lordship over all in which you have gained strength. He owns it, created who and what you have and more. Verse 6 says the king sits in Zion. Zion means he sits in an all-righteous, all-seeing place, and he laughs because the strengths and values of our lives are a weak place to be in his offer of lordship. Look with me at verse 9, if you will. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Just another good, fun Christmas message right there. You know, back in the day, people would store their valuables in pottery. Sometimes they would bury it. 
Sometimes they put it under the, the, the bed or whatever, but it would be invaluable. Iron was, was not around. You know, you didn't say, hey, let me get a steel safe. It, it didn't happen like that. And so you would put your water, your food, some, your, your money, your gold sometimes in these pottery vessels. And so when someone would come to, 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 to take you over or your country over or loot you, they would come with these iron rods. And iron next to pottery means that whatever was in the pottery would easily be crushed and looted and taken. Even people's sustenance, here they are carrying water and, and here comes an iron scepter and boom, and everything would go all over the place and it would easily be looted. The psalmist, the Lord is saying this to you. The life you hold so dear against his righteousness is like in pottery. You're holding it in something fragile that he can so easily, with one touch, with one move, with one offer even of his grace, he can crush the thing that is so valuable to him, it actually cause our lives to spill out all over the place. Your securities, your morals, your values, your substance, God's king comes in like iron. But I want to not make it just about some hostile takeover. It is hostile sounding because we want to hold something against the king, your king. And it feels hostile. Like if my boys do something wrong and I'm like, well, look, let me have that, that, that Nintendo DS3. What's that, 3DS, whatever, little video game? The look on their faces. And I like to make it worse, right? Um, you don't own a Nintendo 3DS. That's mine. And if they make it, I keep going too, Right? Because they have this look like, no, this is definitely my video game. I'm like, you bought nothing. I'll keep this till next year. When they don't even make Nintendo anymore, I'll keep it that long. The horror. Oh, that's so hostile. He's so hostile in his love and discipline of me. Why would he just let me flunk out of school with my Nintendo 3DS and he's got to take it and then claim dominance over it? Oh, my life is over at 10 years old. You know what the greatest hostility to our securities is in this psalm? You know what's iron to our pottery? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. The gospel is the most hostile, strongest element against your self-securities and your self 
righteousness, that God loves sinners like you and me, and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us. And that message hits against our hearts and our lives and our securities, and it pulls and it drags and it loots the things that would keep us from God each and every day that we hear it. Ironically, the gospel is a crushing message for the self-secure, for the self-righteous. He calls us then to not fight or stand against him in some contrived strength, but to take refuge in him. Look at verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Lord gives warnings to the issues of our lives that flare up in rebellion against him. And then in that rebuke offers refuge in the horror of being destroyed by God's holiness, in the horror of God's gospel coming in and tearing apart your very well-put-together self-righteous life. The gospel comes in with that love and that grace that, that tears you apart. It's an irony to the gospel, and it opens you up for the love of God. He is saying, don't stand against that, but let him come in. And he says and calls us with that in mind to kiss the son, to come to find safety where he stands. It is a call to bow, a call call to bend your knees and hearts to a new Lord, to take the law of competency and control and power and prestige and for some suffering and give it to a new law, the law of love, which starts with an offer of mercy that you and I can kiss God so that you and I can kiss the power that created the heavens and the earth, that you and I can kiss the power that will transform and redeem this world for all times. But it means giving up your weapons and your securities. Here is a miracle of Christ coming at Christmas and coming as a baby by incarnating in our world What we see is that a baby is not only the feared king of kings, but is kissable. Oh, I love babies. Just kiss them on the head and they smell good. But, you know, you kind of do the the kiss and the nose at the same time. Right on top of the head. Because they smell so delicious, you almost want to eat them. I know it sounds kind of wrong, but oh my God. Goodness, if you could just eat a baby without eating a baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just want to have a full taste of a little baby. God just has them. They're so sweet. That end sweet. Sometimes that other end, though, does, has a whole mind, a mind of its own down there. Sorry, I've been surrounded by babies in the life of Christ Central lately, a lot of them. At staff meeting Randy. You know, 
Elizabeth used to bring baby, Amanda, all the staff meeting. We all had our chance to hold them. Everybody wants to smell the baby and kiss the baby, right? He's kissable. Jesus came to be touchable. That Jesus King has made himself to be embraced by the likes of you and me, by rebellious and fear-driven lives like yours and mine. God has offered for the lips, uh, for your lips to kiss. He has sacrificed for your suffering and your loneliness and your fragility. You and I are offered in Christ a king that can be touched by our issues and sin and do something about it. And in our kissing him, we are called to freely lay down our weapons, which before him are no weapons really at all. We look like a child to him, right? Like a kid in our greatest strength and show of independence. Like a child with a towel as a cape and a twig or a branch as a sword. Lay down and like a child kiss the father by the son. He's calling you and me to lay down the burden of trying with all that we have to hold it all together. The the strain of self-rule over your own fragile kingdom, your marriage, your friendships, your so-called purpose-driven occupation, your being a parent or wife or single or poor, trying to be rich and sinful and and hidden looking for a true freedom. Our fragile kingdom comes comes not to an end in Christ, but a new beginning. You see, he's not come to snatch the glory of being created in his image or to steal our human dignity away. He's not come to take your womanhood or your sexuality, your thinking or your creativity, even your competency. He wants to supply it with the redeeming benefits of his rule. Under his rule, he's not promising that there will be no pain and change, but to make it part of something lasting and eternal and true. He has come to make your life more triumphant and more broken before him. Look with me at verse 11. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We see, what we see here is a picture of worship, to kiss the son, to come and give him worth, and in doing so, gain worth for the life that he is already the sovereign Lord over. You know what rejoice with trembling looks like? It means having an interaction with the, ho- with the holy God. It means singing for real. It means repenting of your sins. And, and you know, repentance is, is basically a giving up of your weapons, a giving up of your rule. You're giving him the key to your city. Lord, I've run it on my own. I've done wrong. Here are my weapons. Here are my keys. Please give me mercy. Trembling, because he could crush you. Take it, Lord. It means rejoicing in prayer and fellowship. Trembling that your lone ranger hearts, your competent minds will no longer lead you to hunger and spiritual famine, but to give it over to him. You ever been so hungry or thirsty you tremble? You know, it's funny, I don't start shaking like that when I'm hungry. And maybe it's just the men in my family. When we start getting hungry, we, we, something happens to us. But it doesn't happen when there's no food. I only start trembling when I smell the food. It's weird. You get to that table, and, and the chicken's there, and you just start shaking. Y'all, am I the only one? 
some mac and cheese, the baked kind with a little bit of brown on top be there. And you just, I used to watch my daddy. He'd be like, I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? He hungry. It is something about seeing the food. And then when you get it, maybe it's a low blood sugar. I don't know what's going on. When you see the goodness of the Lord and you're rejoicing, it makes your life tremble with hunger and need and thirst because it's right there and it's real and it can be kissed and it can be touched and it can be tasted. His grace for you. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The inheritance is given to God's king. We know it to ultimately be, ultimately be Jesus, but David would look at the psalm himself and say, I too need to be kissed, kissed to be kissed by the son, that, that I can be a son, right? That if I kiss God, God has kissed me too. <laughs> that I am now his to be kept and loved, that, that once I was a nation unto myself, and now I am his property. I am under the banner of his love, under the banner of his grace, that I live under the protection of his flag. God calls us to be kissed and find refuge as one who is the inheritance of the Lord. See, this isn't one, some kind of all right, performance thing about finding ways to get in to kiss the sun. Do you realize the greatest miracle of Christmas in the gospel is that God has come to kiss you. And when he kisses you, you become his inheritance. You become his child. You become his adopted one. You become a son and daughter of the king. And once he kisses you, you are in his kingdom. Again, you are under the banner of his love and his grace. And nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Some of you are strong against the father idea because you did not have a father or known the protecting unconditional love of a father always about performance about proving your deserve to be loved God says lay down your weapons lay down your defenses I am not that kind of father I am a God who calls you to the security of never being lost of never being held where your success and safety can go only as far as you can take it or protect it I am the father who wants to be kissed by his kids and yes kids with jello and jam on their face and dirt and mud all over their hands I come to kiss them in Jesus Christ and cleanse them and make them whole and keep them mine this Christmas God holds out Christ to us like a mistletoe of his grace. And under Christ, we need not wait any longer to come under the shade and security of the offer of the Son. 
and kiss him and be kissed by him. Christ is God's mistletoe. Under it, we gain intimate and sure and secure relationship with God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords.